1: HT SmartCast. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HT Smartcast. Hi, and welcome to part two of my conversation with Chailashti Shankar, author of Turmeric Nation, A Passage Through India's Tastes. Okay, you know, you, you're, uh, what I found fascinating about the book is that you've, like, gotten uh, all these nuggets, which, I mean, I hadn't heard about, it, or, like, the Chinese, this cannibalism. Amongst, I mean, the Chinese are not our favorite uh, people right now, but I can't believe this thing about cannibalism. You mean to say that, like, some Chinese, some of them practiced cannibalism till the 60s? I, I'm finding it a little difficult to di- digest, you know.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, everybody has different tastes. I mean, don't know what (laughs) actually happened. (laughs) You know, they just say idia means stored a lot of bodies.
1: (laughs) So, uh, so it actually it was actually documented that this uh, this was a practice among the uh, you know some Chinese perhaps. So, um, I haven't done much research on any of this, so
0: I mean, mm. basically this is just based on what I have read, and it turns mm. out that yeah, I mean the Chinese one I think was documented. Uh, but that's from uh, an earlier era, not
1: not current. Okay. And, you know, and like I said, other nuggets like Aurangzeb's letter to his son, say, you know, asking for that uh, uh, for that cook. That's also really nice. I mean, to think of an emperor kind of begging his son to part with a master chef. <laughs> yeah, it goes to show how important it was. And, you know,
0: one of the things, I mean, Aurangzeb was a vegetarian. And okay. I also read that he used to um, water gra- the vegetable patch with uh, hmm. rose water and musk so that okay. you know the, veg- the vegetables would have a fragrance
1: oh, so this was okay.
0: a man who seemed to take eating very seriously I mean food very seriously or vegetarian food very seriously
1: <laughs> hmm. <laughs> okay so talk about this childhood taste you know the foods that we consider favorites are in fact what we have preferred in our infancy and childhood you know and, and that's true I find it true for myself as well Lee Wilson actually has
0: written a really interesting book called First Bite How We Learn to Eat. So, in that, mm. she sort of looks at the relationship between genes, a family environment. And then the child and later the adult's preference for some mm. foods and not others, right? So she mm. says that you know there are three ways of thinking about children's food. The first is the family food, where, which is basically uh, you know where um, past the you know after they stop drinking milk, their food is no different from any other food. So everybody grabs the same kind of food. Uh, and this actually teaches the e- child to actually eat fast. Um, and this is basically what the traditional family in, in the traditional way in India elsewhere, that's what people did. You didn't give the child very different food. You just, after some time, you, hmm. I mean, even the first grain is annadhanam, right? So it's actually rice, the morsel of rice dipped in milk. Um, so, um, so that's what used to happen. But now we treat children's food in a, in a s- separate category. So what, you know and we sort of have a very different and then we uh, so so that i think is the second way she says which is called nursery food she she calls it and she says mm-hmm. the children's food should be separate from the adult food but then the uh, grown ups then have to select what the wholesome nutritional food is nutritious food is and then they have to make the child eat it and the third way of dealing with uh, food for, with children is to actually cater to what the child wants so that's called kid food and that basically the child chooses what they want to eat so mm. in um now i think um i haven't looked at i mean i couldn't find much research on children's eating habits in india um, mm. i'm sure that it's out there but i, I didn't actually look <clears throat> look at it but um you know in Indi- but even if you look at your own families if mm. you look at you know a lot of the upper class um, sort of households seem to follow this Western notion of pa- parenting, right? So they tend to sort of ape uh, Western methods of what to do with children's food, how to deal with children's food. And in the West, it's very much about letting the child eat what they want to eat. Uh, but that's actually quite dangerous because uh, the child will, does not know how much nutrition to take in. So they uh, so experiments actually have found that they actually end up eating very unnutritious food. Um, uh, So um, so she comes down to this, um, you know, so so I think one of the things is um, when you um, have children sort of saying, I want this and I don't want that, and they mm. don't eat from a communal sort of, uh, um, um, you know, a common table with the same kinds of foods given to all the children and to the adults. Mm. So they become uh, quite um, picky eaters. Um, That's true. So it's better, I, it's probably better um, or uh, to sort of do it the more traditional way where children mm. eat what the adults eat. And the adults should be eating nutritious food. So if that happens, mm. then the child also develops those kinds of tastes. Okay. So I think that is essentially what it comes down to, that, um, that uh, uh, you know, preferences are actually learned. So you must actually Im- expose your children to very large varieties of dishes and feasts at a very young age, rather than give, making them into picky eaters and giving them like, you know, some boiled um I don't know, carrots and apples
1: <laughs> so also your book kind of gives you a lot a lot of ideas you know i mean i, I like this idea the concept of fermentation um actually you know when you mention that you know this could be a, a restaurant could just be serving fermented food and you know, dosa and dokla and all these things and it would be a great hit yeah. as you mentioned I didn't realize that we were so hooked on fermented food, but you're right. That's one of the things that all Indians, most Indians, seem to. Uh, enjoy so
0: yeah but what's interesting is that fermented food is not given to the gods so Mm, uh, it's quite uh, interesting so we are actually humans and we don't we eat fermented food (laughs) but gods do not eat fermented food food (laughs) 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 So so there's a
1: a definite boundary between us and the gods (laughs) yes Okay, and I also found it interesting that you've mentioned how, uh, you know, like our choice of a cookbook, your favorite cookbook is sort of revealing of your own aspirations. So let's talk about that. We're not drawn to the same cookbook all our lives,
0: right? I mean, most of us move, we're drawn to certain cookbooks at certain stages of of our lives. So in my Mm. case, if I would look at it, I mean, I didn't like South Indian food at all growing up, but when I... Uh, you know, in the last say eight years, I really I've been drawn to this cookbook by Meenakshi Amal, who's who does these this cookbook in the nineteen fifties, um, and so that is a very traditional South Indian, you know, Tamilian way of preparing uh, dishes. Uh, yes. but I would never ever have. Uh, eaten that but I think mm. I was drawn to it not for any aspiration but well, it was more it was almost like I was responding to something within myself where I had gone out, eaten a whole bunch of other things and now there was almost this cleansing or going back to one's own old habits mm. it was almost mm. that, uh, and mm. I, I think that's what I, I think I mean by aspirations because aspirations is what do you want to where do you want to be, what do you want to do uh, at a mm. particular stage, and mm. by being drawn to a particular kind of cookbook, you can mm. actually try and get to know yourself in terms of mm. where you want to be and and what you want to do at that moment.
1: Uh, I like that Dalit chapter, Dalit food chapter in this cookbook section is excellent. I found it really interesting, and especially that Sultan of Man- Mandu saying, Oh, King of Cockroaches, please do not eat my offerings <laughs> to the culinary world with that, that recipe book. Yeah, and it survived. So, I think the King of Cockroaches actually <laughs> must have heard the plea, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to get to this you know this relationship that we now have like i mean food and the concept of secular democracy in india let's you know that's like one of those big questions that we are grappling with today yeah. you know in this thing about in these beef lynchings and you've you've tackled it in your book but yeah. how um how the eating of certain foods has become uh I don't know, you know, dangerous, and also kind of labels certain sections of the uh, uh, of the population in a certain way. So let's talk about that and and why this is happening. And
0: yes, um, it's interesting because you know I think what is happening and it's been happening all through um, for many years now. Um, uh, you know, even during the freedom struggle, uh, food played a very important role in trying to create an identity. Uh, to which a group of people could uh, uh, could be uh, subsumed under that identity. So uh, you had um, bread and lemonade in the past, where in the yeah. 19th century, where bread and lemonade were made by lower castes and Muslims. But yeah. the high caste um, Hindus, uh, some mm. of the younger ones wanted to, um, you know, would go and eat that. And the Brahmasa Samaj, which started at that time, actually allowed... That to happen. I mean, they they mm. didn't ban bread and uh, lemonade. Um, mm. so you have uh, instances like that where certain foods have created a revolutionary fervor. Uh, mm. But as you come, say, to the close of the 19th century, you have Vivekananda, who wanted mm. to create um, a sort of uh, an identity for Hindus and bring all Hindus together. And he used mm. Uh, This don't eat beef as the uh, motive to bring Hindus together under one umbrella because that was something he thought united all the Hindus and Hmm. um, And largely uh, it does. I mean, largely it does. It's like but the thing is that um, but the thing is that when he did that, he did that because he wanted to make sure that. Um, Hindus got together and then they fought against the British and he mm. didn't it didn't really matter about for him I think about the Muslims because it, he was focused mm. on the Hindus um, but when you come to uh, but what he also did was he said you Hindus should not be vegetarian be non-vegetarian eat meat so what he did mm. was he, he told Hindus eat all the different meats but don't eat beef and mm. that uh yeah, so, so that was his strategy. So, you come fast mm-hmm. forward now to um, to the current um, century, and the, and mm-hmm. this whole you know don't eat beef um, in uh, uh, in the in uh, IITs and various other places, mm-hmm. non vegetarian food. You know, you have all these other things. And I think what is happening is that the same beef motive is being used to create a sort of an identity which excludes. One segment of the population, right? So that's what they're trying to do again using beef, which, they have, which people have used in the past, and it has not uh, failed, it has actually succeeded to a certain extent. but. Now, what they're trying to do is they're saying, don't eat beef, don't eat other meats also. Now, Vivekananda, when he did that, um, you know, there been, there's some interesting research which has been done, which is basically that if you taboo something, and uh, then, you, then people really want to break the taboo. But if you taboo one thing and then hide it amongst other things that you can eat, then mm. you're not so tempted to break that taboo and i think with the vivekananda example what he did was he tabooed beef but he mm. didn't taboo eating other kinds of meat whereas now mm. what they're trying to, what some segments are trying to do is they're saying we are vegetarians which we are not i mean only 31% mm. of indians are vegetarians but basically mm. indians should not you know, in, not Indians, Hindus basically don't eat, should not be eating beef and meat, <laughs> which mm. nobody's going to... People uh, are
1: not going to agree. do failure, <laughs> yeah, honestly to me. That sort of thing. Though the beef thing, yeah, it's kind of internalized by everybody, so...
0: Yeah, so but even then, I mean, even with beef, I think about 13 million Hindus eat beef, so it's not yes. like it's it's totally taboo. But what but with beef which also has, uh, which you know, in the research that I was doing, what, what was interesting was that castes that were eating beef stopped eating mm-hmm. beef and moved up the ladder, the caste ladder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. like two generations ago, people, you know, so even among Dalits, for instance, they moved mm-hmm. higher up than they. Than when they were eating beef, so beef then becomes like a signal where they say, mm. you know, a, a signal to sort of move up the caste ladder by stopping mm. eating beef. You actually move up the caste ladder. So it it also, you know, um, performs this very peculiar function of, mm. of, of you know uh, signaling a movement uh, of a of a family or a caste or so
1: yeah. This sort of thing seems peculiarly Indian I mean and you've dealt with that also about our uh, ideas of pollution and uh, purity. purity. though also you've said that this is this is seen even in Islam and in, uh, in Judaism, but the, the, the I don't know the, the particulars of it are different I guess for each of these religious groups.
0: Yeah, because I think, I mean, as far as Hindus are concerned, because I was trying to figure out, does food have a religion? And, you know, do Hindus have a particular way of dealing with food that is very different from, say, a Muslim way or a Christian way or a, you know, Parsi way? Mm. And um, when I was looking at some of the research, uh, one um, uh, uh, one, um, uh, food anthropologist, uh, Kharé, did this very interesting study Mm. in the 1970s amongst uh, UP um, Hindus. And so his whole theory is that um, among Hindus, Hindus actually see food very instrumentally. Um, so the way they deal with food is food is not about nutrition. I mean, that's all very secondary. It is, foods link to spirituality. That's what comes. And so he's, you know, so in the Vedas, for instance, you have a lot of uh, hymns which all talk about a big, uh, you know, uh, uh, which basically talk about this doggy dog world. So it's all about big fish eating little fish. Uh, the Brahmins at the top of the caste ladder eating the castes below. So that's how it's all about the eating motif is brought in, in in those poems. But um, uh, when when it comes to this, uh, so so. Um, um, uh, uh, his but his theory about uh, food is about food as power. So it's about who eats and who's the eater, right? Who's the eater and mm. who's the eaten? But mm. there, are, there are other um, uh, studies that you know, and other researchers who've uh, sort of um, questioned it, and they've said like, actually, it has not. It's not f- constant all through time. It may have been at one point, but after the Vedic period when you mm. had the entry of uh, Buddhism uh, about around 500 BCE, when you had Buddhism and Jainism, then mm. the whole food motif became one where, uh, you know, you were talking about um, uh, uh, asceticism. So you yeah. have people, uh, so you have this whole dog uh, world uh, in the Vedic period. And then when you mm. come to the, the next period, what you find is that, People who shun food and people who are actually not cooking the food, but they're actually mm. the ones who are begging for the food and they are supposed to be getting the food. This ascetic mm. is at the top of the ladder and purity mm. becomes much more important than this mm. dog dog, uh, the power motive.
1: So it's a real
0: shift. That's a shift. Uh, but then what mm. happens is now we have both. We have... We have we have all the, it's not like one and then the next, uh, you know, and then uh, now we have both the ascetic, ascetic as well as this whole dog-eat-dog world. We have both types. Um, we live in that, in a world where both of those types exist, right? So, um, mm. so among the rich, for instance, it's about, you know, who's very, or among people at the top of the caste ladder, it's about who's below. So the hierarchy continues. Through food, so if you look at dalit food, for instance, the fact that a rich landlord gives his dalit workers, uh, you know, barnyard millet or the kernel of a mango, that itself tells you who eats yeah. who's the, who's the eater and who's the eaten, right? Mm. But at the same time, there's also this movement about you know, let's fast. Um, you know, we uh, and there's this connection between fasting and spirituality. So people fast on different days of the week. Um, so. There is also this, this sort of aura around fasting and spirituality and not taking the food. That sort of goes towards the ascetic uh, lineage. So, so we live in a time when you have different sort of influences on the way we behave. And, we are, as, and as I said, we hold multiple centuries in ourselves and in our behaviors. Um, and that comes through very well in, in the way we deal with food. Because sometimes we, we have feasts. So we have like Navratra fast, and then we have a Diwali mm. feast. You know, you have brides fasting, and then they get
1: married, and then they, there's a feast.
0: So, yes.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I think that your book kind of brings all these strands together. And it's been a really interesting read. And to end with it, to end the conversation, I have to tell you that I found that a bit about uh, the little story about R.K. Narayan having pepperoni and thinking it's tomato. <laughs> and then going back and uh, kind of cleansing his palate with curd rice. Really funny. It's so true of what, uh, of how an Indian, I mean, an orthodox perhaps yeah. is the right word. Uh, you know, practicing Hindu would react to eating pepperoni. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Shailashree, for uh, talking to me. I love your book. And um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. And by the way, HT Smartcast has launched its first audiobook called A Spy in China, written by Yamini Pustake Balirao and published by Juggernaut Books. It's a topical political thriller based on the ongoing tensions between India and China. Every week from the 10th of July 2020, there's a new chapter for you to listen to. Don't miss it. Log on to www.htsmartcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts and search for A Spy in China.